0: And I'm, I'm sure that I've probably just made a bunch of enemies by saying that I think it's likely that it'll happen. But, you know, again, this is about honesty.
1: This is From the Ground Up, the story of me starting my reptile business. number 37 or i thought it was 38 but whatever you're doing your own thing um we're here with dr travis wyman so dr travis wyman can you give us a little background of what you do professionally and then also what you do in the reptile hobby all
0: right so professionally i work in the field of forensic genomics which probably a little bit too detailed to go into in-depth but basically i just do genetic research on things uh do a lot of in-depth high sequencing on next generation sequencing platforms um in the hobby i you know just like everybody else i like to breed i like to play around and find fun things to do just enjoy the animals uh primary subject of my collection is ball pythons, just like everybody mostly because they have all the different kind of morphs to play with Um, you know I get a little bit more of a kick out of that being the genetic side of it from you know a genetic standpoint Um, but I also keep a handful of other things uh, gray banded kings rubber boa uh, a couple other different python species hognose again just for fun
1: now, as far as what you do professionally, do the same um, things kind of apply to the snake genetics and everything that you see in our snakes that we keep in the hobby? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've said
0: it before in forums and things. Genetics is genetics is genetics. So there's nothing... In our animals, that's completely off the books, off the radar, new and different from anything that we would see anywhere else, you know, be it in fish or frogs or fruit flies or plants. Mm. Now, the extent to which you might see it could be a little bit different. You know, obviously what you see in... The genetics of a bacteria is not going to apply one-to-one to to, say a snake, but the fundamentals are still there. You know, if you have a gene and it gets turned on, you're not just turning on one gene and one gene only. There will be downstream effects. They can have a play in different other genes. You get the same thing in bacteria, plants, fish, birds,
1: snakes, dogs, people. Okay so I mean then it's pretty much across the board <laughs> so how yeah. did you how did you go from you someone in college studying genetics were you always interested in it or how did you go from there or did you see the hobby before that as far as reptiles go
0: um,
1: Well I've been into
0: reptiles since I was. <laughs> You know, knee high. I caught my first snake when I was five in preschool, and that was just, you know, a fascination with them. Um, genetics came about. I've always been into biology. The more I went through school as I went up, I kind of took the feeling that the smaller you went, study, Then the more opportunities you would have in the ability to study things. So if you study just basic biology in terms of career paths, there's not exactly a ton of different directions that you could go. But if you move smaller down and get down to the genetics level, then you can move up. Anywhere. So with genetics, if I wanted to move up to animal biology, I could, or plant biology, I could, or cancer biology, I could. If I just decided to, you know, shoehorn myself into, you know, basic biology, I could maybe end up as a vet. But if you try to go from a vet down to, you know, down to genetics, it's a harder step. So I took the genetics aspect of it. Um, My Undergraduate studies were in genetics and microbiology, and my PhD is actually in microbial molecular genetics. But again, it's taking that, yeah, you know, (laughs) at at base level, then you can step up or step around, and then, you know, I took it up to, you know, the metagenomic level, and that's, you know, how I ended up doing. Yeah, the forensic genomic stuff that I do, which you know encompasses a couple of different fields.
1: Okay, and luckily, you know, snakes offer so much stuff as genetics. People have been working with all the genetics in the hobby and stuff like that. So let's—I don't think people kind of understand even how mutations happen. So, you know, even in the wild, a snake hatches out of an egg. Who seems like a spontaneous mutation? Why does that happen, and how exactly does that happen?
0: Um, well, the genetics that are happening aren't happening in the egg. They're actually happening in the parent animal. Um, and so when you have, you have know, basically got two types of cell division, which some of us may remember from our basic biology classes. You have mitosis, which is just where your cells divide into... And then those cells can divide into and those cells can divide into and they have each time that happens, the daughter cells have a full complement of genetic package. Then there's meiosis where first the cells divide in two and then those cells split again. But that second split, they go from having, you know, your full genetic package of two copies of each chromosome to a half genetic package, one copy of each chromosome. And it's those gametes then, the sperm and the eggs, where you get some type of you know, mutation. It may be just a single letter change in the DNA. It may be that a fragment of the DNA breaks or gets flipped around. And that's where you, your mutation comes in. And then it gets passed on from the parent
1: to the offspring. And then basically what would... A successful mutation living in the wild would obviously be passed on generation to generation right that's how you get you know populations of melanistic animals
0: yeah and that, that you know that comes about through you know first you get the mutation event which causes the mutation and then you have the evolutionary selective pressure where you know if you have say your, you know, your pepper moth is the classic example. You get a moth that's black because of a mutation. And then that moth is more selectively fit because it blends in with the trees that are stained from coal dust, which are black now. So because it's blending in, it doesn't get eaten. And it's more likely to then find a mate and breed, and then those babies are more likely to be black because of the mutation. That was and so, yeah, that was in the parent, and then it keeps passing along. Then you start getting a higher concentration of the black individuals, and that gives you a population effect. And we see that in all kinds of different species. Um, you know, in deserts, there are. You know, out in the southwest, you've got volcanic cones and you get mice around those volcano cones. Now, the volcano cones are black and the mice are normally sand colored to mend- blend in with the sand. But around those volcanic cones, the mice are black. Wow! And it's the same type of thing. They're black because a mutation has occurred that causes them to change their coat color. The black ones blend in. If you have that sandy white colored mouse it sticks out like a sore thumb against the black background of the volcanic cone. You know, and then the opposite is true. If one of those black mice makes a break for it out into the open desert and tries to live,
1: now it sticks out. (laughs) So how often do these mutations happen in the wild, you know, in order to start these processes?
0: Um... (laughs) Uh, That's a little bit more complicated math. Um, (laughs) On average, you could say that just a spontaneous mutation occurs about once every 100,000 to million letters in the DNA. Now, a lot of times those are just silent, and they don't mean a lot. But you also have to consider, you know the number of sperm and egg that are produced are in pretty high numbers. So pretty much every gamete cell that you have is probably carrying some type of mutation. Now, whether that mutation is a viable mutation or a silent mutation is a whole other ball of wax. You know, a lot of those are going to be silent. You're not going to see them. They don't change anything majorly. Then there's a whole other category of them where... the the way they delete the gene or mess up the gene basically kills the animal or the embryo before it can develop in you know after fertilization
1: how do we get so lucky say with ball pythons that we have so many genes that only affect color and pattern and don't really affect much of any of the other processes with the animal or internally uh, at
2: all you stole my question
0: (laughs) (laughs) um It's a good question, and this is all supposition on my part because there hasn't been a lot done with genetics on ball pythons, but my best guess would be that a lot of these mutations are tied in at a root level to basically one or two primary systems, and so you just get a handful of mutations to that system and it shakes out in a lot of different ways and it's not a you know it's not a crucial system so at root you basically have two or three systems that contribute to pigmentation okay and pigmentation isn't generally speaking it isn't a life or death type of thing now yeah if you end up with you know like an albino again that's the white animal that sticks out like a sore thumb and tends to Mm -hmm. get knocked out but you know for things like black pastels or yellow bellies you know those they still don't stick out that much compared to a wild type especially in the wild so there isn't a strong selection against them So you can have an accumulation of these different types of mutations that, you know, they're subtle in as much as in the wild. They don't change the animal enough to really select against it. So then those genes and those pathways aren't selected
1: against and purified against Uh, with other animals. Go ahead. That kind of makes sense as far as because I always wondered why... Are they? Um, why are there so many mutations when the animal doesn't really have much reason to, to do evolve it. or right. do anything because it's in basically a termite mound or something its whole life? But the fact is that that actually allows all those mutations, I guess, to survive, especially a black pastel, which is still within like the normal coloration of a ball python.
0: Yeah. So when there's not anything. Selecting against you in a strong way, then the mutation can persist and keep doing. Right. And if there isn't something selecting against that family of mutations, that's why you've got black pastel and cinnamon and het red and Lori and Huffman. You know, you can get different mutations there because the gene itself, there isn't any real purifying process going against it. If you had strong selection against it, you wouldn't see all these different kinds of mutations to that same region.
1: Okay, now that we're talking about that, um, I want to talk about more specifically to the palmetto as far as this is a snake that is obviously really far away from the normal coloration of a corn snake so um you know hash out of an egg it's a white snake with these red kind of blotches what causes it it seems like a leucistic, but it almost is like incompletely um leucistic, <laughs> if that makes any sense meaning like the normal coloration goes through and kind of like Paint splatters. What's going on there? Like genetically, to make that happen.
0: Okay, this is (laughs) now. I'm not as fully versed in colubrid genetics because I don't, you know, do a lot of colubrid breeding. But my suspicion is that palmetto is probably most analogous to uh, like the fire gene in ball pythons. It is a leukism gene, but I'm, you know, and this is probably going to blow up in all the wrong ways, I'm inclined to think that it's probably more a piebaldism gene that's just a lot more extreme. Um, And that's why you still see fragmentary pigmentation in these animals is because... You know, if you think about it as being a piebald gene now, you can understand why there would be patches of white, but still patches of coloration. And that coloration oh, yeah. is disrupted because of the way it's laid down in a piebald manner. And then when you look at the fired, you know, mutation in ball pythons, the super fires or the more extreme ones like the sauce and the lemon back. It's such an extreme version of piebaldism that they basically end up all white. But then you, you look at the
1: get those yellow
0: spots. Right. And if you look at the more mild versions, like the vanilla and the disco, or especially the combinations of like fire and disco or fire and vanilla, then you see what is almost true piebaldism, where they've got the the white blotches, but they've also got the patterning blotches. And I think, you know, you see that in some other species too, you know, the retics, you've got the cow retic. Mm-hmm. And that's probably... My guess is a similar type of mutation. Um, And when you go looking in the literature, again, going back to genetics is genetics is genetics, you know, we see piebaldism in lots of different animals. You know, we especially see it in in our domestic animals, cows, horses, dogs, cats. But you see it in wild animals. You know, we see it in deer. We see it in rabbits. We see it in foxes and wolves. And when you look over all of these different animals there's really only about four or five genes that consistently come up as being responsible for these patterns. Um, and like deer, there are three very specific types of piebaldism and you can tell even at a distance, once you you know again, once you've gotten into the deep literature, you can tell that they are expressed differently. There's one that's expressed stronger towards the tail than it is towards the head. There's one that's expressed stronger towards the belly than it is the back, and then there's one that, for lack of a better term, is both belly and tail stronger than head and back. (laughs) <laughs> so okay. you know, you've, got a, you've got a top, top be... down, you've got a front to back, and then you've got, you know, an upper left corner to bottom right corner type of piebaldism. And those are three separate genes. So if you have three separate genes responsible for piebaldism in deer, you could see how there could be multiple types of piebaldism in other animals too, versus just the standard, well, bam, that's a piebald ball python, and there's no other types of piebald. There could be something else that's different and it's just expressed more radically
1: because that's kind of a question i was gonna have because the palmetto i mean we do have pied sided in corn so that obviously works from the belly and doesn't really hit the saddles on top so you'll get basically white in variation Mm -hmm. lower to higher on the side of the animal but never goes over the saddles really Mm -hmm. then obviously in ball pythons you see it in more of a banded pattern Mm -hmm, you know around it Mm -hmm. So that's why I was wondering. And then also the the palmetto kind of acts like leucistic other colubrids as far as you have bug eyes and stuff like that. And it seems incomplete dominant from what I've seen.
2: Does the palmetto, does it go all down the belly? I can't remember what the belly of a palmetto looks like. Is there still the red splotches all throughout the belly too?
1: No, I don't believe so. Oh, believe it's, it's only it's it's only
2: sure. on the saddle.
1: But that's why I was okay. just wondering, I don't know, because it seems like it acts like a Lucy to me as far as inconsistency with all the other colubrid leucistics. So I was wondering if you had an opinion on that as far as um, leucistics usually connected to a bug eye gene, especially in our colubrids.
0: Um, the, okay, so so this gets, this gets a little bit more weird. Um, so the way that Lukeism happens in almost all animals, and it's also tied back into, um, the... Uh, piebaldism is in how melanocytes are laid down. Melanocytes don't just act only as pigment genes. Um, A lot of times they act as, you know, like either traffic cops or pathfinders where they direct other cells to move along. And if something happens to cause a defect in the functional formation of the melanocyte, then the way other genes react and other proteins fold and function can be disrupted. And so when you have a situation like that, where the basement layer of the eye is dependent on melanocyte direction... If you have a mutation that messes up the melanocytes, you then, as a side effect, have a mutation that causes a disruption in how the cells for the eye formation are laid out, which can give you that bug eye effect.
1: So does that happen stronger in piebald genes or, you know, your Lucy's? As far as the melanocytes, are they affect? They're obviously affected with other genes, correct?
0: Yeah. Well, I, it's like a direct. It's a direct effect of their. It's a uh, in in genetics we would call this a secondary phenotype or an extended phenotype. So the main phenotype that you see would be the leukism or the piebaldism, but as a secondary effect, you're also messing up that eyeball formation, which is why it, you know. <coughs> you get the bug eye, but it is a direct effect of the piebald or the leukism mutation. Now, why it only happens some of the time is because, you know, as I mentioned before, you don't just have one gene acting independent of the world. You know, your one gene trips out, which causes a handful of other genes to cascade differently, which will cause, you know, each of those have a handful. So by the time you're done, you've got 20, 30, 50, genes misbehaving to some degree or other and it's kind of like turning you know volume up in one area and down in another area and shifting your levels if you do it you know wrong intentionally you can really screw stuff up but if you just twist here and there a little bit you're not necessarily going to throw your levels out so bad that you know everything is impossible
1: to hear see and understand so, does this mean that, um, is there any way? I guess the golden question is there any way to separate this gene? Say, like, I want to have palmettos, but I don't want bug eyes. Is there any way to produce, to breed non bug eyes?
0: Yeah, no, probably not. As long as you're breeding mm. these animals, there will always be a potential chance for you to produce a bug-eyed animal, because the two, like I said, the two phenotypes are caused by the exact same mutation. It's just, sometimes you'll see the bug-eye thing because of the way that it's expressed. You know, if one gene is expressed a lot stronger than another, or something in the cascade gets twisted differently, and in other cases you won't. Now, I I guess in theory you could, you know... (laughs) Over years and years and years of selective breeding, you could try and get different mutations to all of the genes involved that would stack your odds in favor of the bug eyes being really, 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 really really rare, but... You know, with like, all the different healthy potential healthy. genes involved. Yeah, if, with all the different potential genes involved, the odds of being able to select all of the different alleles for all of those different genes to give you the perfect chance to never, ever, ever, ever hit a bug eye.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: you're, you know, you're bordering on the, you know, <clears throat> throw a rock up in the air and it'll never come down type of odds. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So I thought it was good how you explained it before when we talked as far as genetics can sometimes be a dimmer. So as far as, you know, because yeah. we see a lot of variants as far as the degree of bug-eyedness, if that mm-hmm. was a word. But so, you know, there's some that are really bad and some that don't. And people tend to cull the ones with really bad ones thinking that they're getting them out of the gene pool. But I mean, at the end of the day, they all share the same genes, don't they? Because they're out of the same clutch.
0: Yeah. They all share this. I mean, (laughs) yes and no. Um, you know, like I said earlier on talking about, you know, how mutations occur, basically every sperm or every egg is going to carry some mutation. So, you know, yeah, the one that you throw away or call out, it's going to have some genes that are different than all of its siblings. But at the end of the day, calling that one out doesn't mean that you've called out the problem genes for the bug eyes because the problem gene for the bug eye is directly that piebald
1: gene or that leukism gene. So, right. it can,
2: so just because you threw that in light doesn't mean you're stopping
1: it. Um, the nature just, of moving around the just, pigment and... It,
2: it's going to happen, you know, just because you threw that in light, it's just how it happened, the mutation, you know, the genes happen to work in that one. But it can happen just as much as another one.
0: Right. And, you know, if... You know, if you can think about again, going back to ball pythons, and I know that this started with colubrids, but ball pythons are just one of the more it's dramatic really examples of it because everybody, you know, everybody usually understands ball pythons. So we see the bug eye phenomena in the blue eyed Lucy group. Okay, especially with super lessers and super butters, it happens really consistently with those. But when you start looking at things like the Mojave butters or the Super Mojaves, the Super Russos, you know, and then keep scaling it back, it's the ones that are more extreme example that are more prone to causing the bug eye, and that goes back to that dimmer switch. Mm-hmm. concept. The, the stronger the mutation, the, the worse off the melanocytes are, so the greater the likelihood that your negative effect is going to be amplified. But if you're looking at something like the Mojaves or the Russos or the Phantoms, those mutations are must, much less extreme, so the damage to the melanocyte is much lower. So the likelihood of the bug-eye phenomenon is lower because the dimmer switch isn't cranked as high as you're moving along through the pathways.
1: Okay, so essentially, when you're getting a full leucistic snake, you're breaking the very way the melanocytes work so much that you are messing up your potential or upping the potential for the bug eyes correct so the more so I mean you would think that a piebald is going to be less often bug-eyed than your full Lucy that may be super butter or something like that yeah okay I mean that makes sense. So what we're doing right now in the corn corn snake hobby is Back to we're, we're taking <laughs> palmettos and we're breeding them to wild cots, saying you know this is going. It's all a matter of inbreeding is why we're getting these eye problems, even though everything's recessive anyway. So everything shares the inbreeding going to happen. That. But um, so this is generally are we wasting our we're wasting our time with By the wild cots stuff. Low
0: yeah the odds are that breeding it to the wild type stuff is not going to fix the bug eye problem (laughs) the odds are that that the bug eye problem is just is intimately tied in and it's a direct cause of the palmetto mutation itself so you breed more wild you know you breed in more wild type blood yeah it's good to help you know it's always good in my opinion to outcross just because you know inbreeding is a bad thing overall Right. but if your goal is I'm going to solve the bug eye problem I don't think you're going to prove to be very successful in that (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. So that's that's interesting. So I mean we're looking at probably 10% of them have been coming out bug-eyed now. <sighs> So I don't know if that's going to drop anytime soon, but I mean, people try to, um, very popular in Colubrids, people culling out things that they do not want. So um, some of the old school keepers actually, if a baby's not feeding, um, they will cull out that baby in order to get it kind of out of the gene pool. So is that doing but is it anything
2: out. I, I mean, clearly I don't know, but in my head I would think genes isn't what's keeping it from eating,
1: I don't know. Is it something that's hereditary?
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> possibly. Um, so you know, now you're getting into behavior, and that you know, behavior being instinctual, instinctual is down to somewhat to a genetic pattern. Um. So yeah, it's possible that by calling out the weak eaters, you're purifying those genes out but it also goes back to so what if the weak feeder has got five genes in combination and that's what makes it a weak feeder Mm. and you have to get those five genes in concert so you call that one out you haven't purged those five genes out of the population because all of its siblings have those genes they just don't have them all combined I mean, nobody's going to say, well, I've got this one-week feeder. I'm going to purge the entire clutch, and I'm not going to breed these parents together because those genes are in there.
2: Right, because you don't know when you're going to get all those five working right. together again. Like, yeah, we can't know. make that happen. You know, we can't go anymore.
0: You know, if if people were a lot more... Die hard about it and only bred their strong feeders together. And yeah, you know, anytime you got a clutch of weak feeders, never breed those parents again and purge the whole clutch, Good luck you'd be you're gonna have it no babies. Problem, but you know, it's, you know, it's one of those things people don't do that because um, it's a level of. <laughs> It's a level of selective breeding that the hobby is, you know, they're not into and they're not they don't think on.
1: Also, I mean, corn snakes—they make colder babies because, I mean, you're having a clutch of 20 eggs. Um, the babies are so small; you're feeding so many babies, and they're honestly not worth that much. I but think if some you other have ones, some we super get, duper get two a babies gene ball python, I think you're getting that thing feeding. And, I mean, <laughs> you're that gonna just find goes a way. Along with the money that's in the hobby.
0: Yeah. You know, and, you know, like you said, it's a numbers game. I mean, you know, if you, you, know, you got a six egg clutch from ball pythons and you're aiming for one thing and that one thing also ends up to be your weak feeder, you're not going to be like, well, mix that yeah, one and like, mix the yeah. whole clutch and never breed these parents <laughs> together because, you know, those parents were expensive and that four gene female is, you know, Now, you know, a pinnacle of my thing and the three gene male that I bred her to is, you know, he's a good breeder, but all of his, you know, offspring turn out to be piss poor feeders.
1: you know yeah, this kind of leads me to a different that. place because i feel like ball pythons people say oh like my clowns feed really well my spiders even though they have neuro feed very well but those seem to be genes that were some of the first that we brought in so is there a level of domestication or some way to where the things that we've been in captivity, captivity actually eat better
0: Ooh, that
1: might be an overreach yeah <laughs>
0: Um, domestication of snakes is a real um, hot topic. <laughs> yeah. So... I agree. <laughs> d- uh, domestication is not an instantaneous process. Okay. And I've gotten in this argument with a number of people in the past. Um, <laughs> it takes a long time. Now, you can push to start seeing certain aspects of it in a fairly short period but it also depends on you know where on the evolutionary scale the animal you're dealing with is right. so we're going to go real far left field uh, in Russia back in I want to say it was the late 50s early 60s they started an experiment with foxes and basically they would you know breed foxes together, and then they'd reach into the cage, and whichever one came over and was friendly, they'd take that one, you know, and then they'd put it in a cage with all the other ones that would do that, and then they'd breed those ones, and they kept repeating that cycle. Yeah. Okay. And they have been doing that consistently since this experiment started, so we're going on like 40, 50 years here. Whoa. And if you look at the outcome... Of those animals now, we have foxes that are extremely gregarious. Um, You know, they're much more playful. They yip and they talk and they bark at you the same way, you know, your domesticated dog would. They still look like foxes, except...
1: I had heard <laughs> you're getting things like floppy ears and shorter snouts and stuff. That
0: and that's what I was. That's that. what I was about to say. You get. You do see some things like piebaldism, floppy ears, longer tails, mm-hmm. um, some changes in facial structure, but. When you look at the larger set of data, part of the reason that that's happening is when the scientists would go in and they'd stick their hand in the cage and the little fuzzy ones would come over to play. What if you get three of them that come over to play? Mm. Well, then it's you're you're going to be like, well, but this one's also cute. So that's then the one that you're subjective. Right. Subjective. So there's subjective. there's a there's a. a a second level of selection there that's not just the, well, he's cute and fuzzy, or it's not just that he's playful and he comes over to me, it's also that he's cute and fuzzy and I like him better than his sibling who <laughs> looks just like a wild fox but is equally as playful and as gregarious. And it's like those things you're seeing,
2: like the tails and the floppy ears. It's like someone who puts their hand in might like that more than
1: so the other right, you person. Are, you're line breeding also to a certain
0: extent. Right. So you're selecting for these other mutations along the way. Now, I that's probably similar to what we're seeing with a lot of these, you know, like you're saying, the older morphs that have been in the hobby a long time spiders you know yeah spiders have been there and then you know the spider that you know ate better that was the one that got bred faster and there's a selective pressure there too you know if your snake eats really 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 well you know if you you know early on in the game you know with a first spider's bread bred and you've got a clutch that's half spiders and half normals and you've got one of those baby spiders that's just eaten like a horse that's the one you're going to keep. And that's the one that's going to get bred first. And this goes then back to, you know, the, well, do you call the poor feeder in the, the entire clutch? <laughs> right? No. Well, you don't necessarily have to call it because what you're, you know, the flip side is, well, you've got that strong feeder. He gets up to size faster. You breed him. Now you have, to, you know, you breed him to three females. Now you have three females that are gravid with genes from that good feeder. And then the babies from that, the ones that are strong feeders are the ones that you're going to keep back for yourself and you're going to sell off the weaker feeders. And you know, then, you know, since nerd is the originator of spider, you know, think about the hundreds of thousands of animals that Kevin has that he's been cycling through, you know, he's sort of inadvertently been selecting for the strong feeder. And then by the time it hits the market, all the
1: spiders that Kevin's releasing are these strong feeder spiders. And then it's kind of something that I talk to people about is like you see that adult female or something for sale, you know that that's going to not be good at producing. And I mean, the, the ones that consistently produce people just breed them and turn them out a lot more. Right. Quickly. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it depends on where it's coming from. I mean, yeah, for the most part, I would agree with you. <laughs> But especially if it's coming from like a larger breeder. But, you know, sometimes the smaller hobby breeders, you know, I'd be one of them. You know, I just sold off a 10 egg producing girl because wow. she was a single. Breed. And, right. you know, she was a powerful breeder. She was a strong breeder for me. But I've got three of her daughters and they're all breeding size, too. And don't need her. they're all multi-genes. So it's like, well, why do I need a single gene girl when I have, you know, a triple gene and two quad gene girls from her as well? Right. And yeah, I mean, so I've got, I've got I've got the genetics of both the morph plus other morphs, and they're all beasts when it comes to feeding. So they've got the same strong feed response that she has, and they've got the same good size that she has. So You know, I let her go because it makes more sense for me to then free up her tub and I can, you know, move. Right. And I can move something else up. And I've still got her genetics in my thing. So me selling off, you know, one of those big breeder female girls, that's a little bit less likely that she's a problem animal. But uh, yeah, you know, in a bigger situation.
1: In that. Yeah. As far as when I first Like, started knowing at least a little bit about ball pythons. Normals were adult female normals, were still like. Very gold. Yeah. Because you know, you were <laughs> I'm shocked with something that would turn out more animals when ball pythons you could have put a super pastel to that girl and gotten, and gotten all pastels bunch. which True. were like twenty five hundred bucks at the time or something. True. So I think that, yeah, if you're seeing that one gene animal, you know, sometimes that's just the hobbies moving on. And yeah. then, you know, the lower end guys will get the single
2: gene and then, <laughs> and then they can start the ladder. And, Yeah. They get get to start off with theirs. <laughs>
1: So what kind of jeans do you work with?
0: Um, I've got a bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty strong with some Orange Dream stuff right now. I have I have a crazy male who is an Ivory Butter Orange Dream Pastel. Wow. Um, and he's given me some good stuff. Uh, I have from him a let me see if i get this right butter orange dream pastel woma yellow belly i have a butter How do you
2: even remember
0: i have a butter enchi orange dream pastel yellow belly <sighs> Uh, I just hatched a clutch from him to a lemon blast where I have either a pastel orange dream pinstripe yellow belly or maybe a super pastel orange dream pinstripe yellow belly. I have two at least super emperor pins that are also yellow belly, possibly orange dream. I can't tell because they haven't shed out yet. Um Yeah, and then I have a couple of other, you know, just smaller projects that I'm working on. Uh, I've got a Candino Woma project that I'm working on.
1: So this is kind of brings I me. I wonder your opinion on. I mean, I've seen the corn snake market turn into. I don't know what the hell I have because there's just so many genes out there, and with corn snakes, a lot of them are recessive, and we've been breeding possible hets for, you know, 30 years, so they're all kind of hidden in there. But um, is there going to be a point where you can't tell what your ball python is, and then there's yeah. just a ceiling as far as every ball python's like corn snakes. Every corn snake at this point is worth. Worth like a hundred bucks because you're like i'm not gonna breed all the genes out and there seems to be you know things like motley and stripe which are very dominant and kind of if you have five genes in the animal they kind of all look the same if it just Maybe blends color eventually make, yeah <laughs> yeah i
0: mean i think we'll probably well i think we're starting to see that a lot with ball python's uh I don't want to say a complete saturation, but I'm more inclined to say that we're seeing that because of what I'm seeing turning up in, you know, big box stores. Mm, Really? You know, when you think about, you know, five, ten years ago, you go to a big box store and basically all you had were the wild types. And now I'm seeing, you know, multi-gene animals. They had a jigsaw. At the PetSmart up here, um, I've seen bananas. Uh, I just saw on a forum the other day that somebody found a Super Stripe. So when those have hit the at Petco, whoa! So when you've hit that point where right. you know Petco is selling these things, you know it's Super Stripes five years ago were yeah. Super Stripes five years ago were. You know, pretty serious snake,
1: and now they're being looked at as a byproduct kind of thing, right? Um, I think a big problem is they're all labeled fancy ball python. And you know, so. yes,
0: that's that is a big problem because then everybody's like, "Well, what's this?" and you know, you get it's a
1: ball python.
0: Yeah, it's a ball python, and you know, it's it's a ball python, and you have to take with a grain of salt whatever um people are going to say it is because you know people take horrible pictures oh, and yeah, a lot know. of the you know, a lot of the people online don't know what they're talking haven't about. been doing this <laughs> right they haven't been doing this a long time so they think they know what they're talking about and the people who have experience are getting shouted out by these you know these people who've got you know five minutes of keyboard commandoism and <laughs> you know it's it's ridiculous you know I, I i watched an argument happen a couple of months ago where a guy picked up a rescue animal and everybody was like it's a caramel it's a caramel and i was looking at him like that animal is a lesser all day long which is not and they're like close. well <laughs> Right, it's not even close, and I'm like, they're like, well, the color looks like a less or caramel, and I'm like, well, one, the color is bad because it's a cell phone shot against like horrible fluorescent lights, but you can't just look at the color of a picture and be like, that's it. There's a lot more. You got to look at the patterning and stuff. You know, a caramel. To all intents and purposes, has the pattern of a wild ball python, which is fairly consistent. You know, lessers. You know, they've got a lot of that dorsal striping. The alien heads are blurred down, and they tend to be eyeless. And you know, there's a lot of aspects. So if you just look at the color and be like, "That's a caramel," and you know, all of these posts in the thing were like, "It's caramel," "It's a caramel," "It's a caramel," and like two other people were like, "I'm pretty sure that's a lesser," and people were trying to argue them down, and the people who were saying that it was a lesser had, you know. You can see they've been on the forums for like you know a lot. 10 years but you know they just aren't frequent posters and these you know they've got less posts than these kids who've been on there for a year and everybody's taken you know it's a caramel it's a caramel and the guy finally said hey I managed to track down the original owner of this oh, wow. and it turns out it's a lesser directly from the Ralph Davis line and I was just like see people you gotta you gotta <laughs> look at more than just the color before you call it out you know <laughs> Yeah, you want to know what your snake is? It's a ball python. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know if you if you bought a snake at a pets at a Petco and you come out and you're like, I think this looks like it's a scaleless head piebald, or I think this is an acid. No, dude, you got it at a Petco. You didn't get an acid at a Petco. You know, go on Morph
1: Market and look, and the acid is, you know, $10,000, $12,000 animal. Nobody's dropping those off at Petco. Nobody. And, I mean, if you want to try and make a super with an acid that he knows an acid, breed it out and... Yeah, go for it, you know, and you'll find out that the animal that you have is, you know,
0: not quite what you think it is because you're being a little bit optimistic in what you see.
1: (laughs) Well, do you think that people are kind of being optimistic with what they see in general in ball pythons as far as um, an acid looks like a nanny, looks like a whatever, whatever? That's probably a bad example. I don't really know the genetics that great, but it seems like there's a lot of those darker, slightly pattern-changing mutations that look exactly the same. (laughs) I think... Some
0: of it is wishful thinking, yeah. But I think a lot of it is more... Well, I think a lot of it is wishful thinking coupled with inexperience. And, well, ignorance. Although people get really offended when you use the term ignorant. And... (laughs) I don't mean it in an insulting way because we're all ignorant about something. Anything. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that uh, ignorance merely means a lack of knowledge. It doesn't mean that you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you're an idiot. It just means that you don't have the knowledge. So you have to acquire the knowledge base. You know, I'm ignorant about a great many things. You know, I, I couldn't pick up a violin right now and try and play it because I'm ignorant about how to play a violin. And I own that. I know that. You know, if I wanted to learn how to play a violin, I would take the time to learn. I would overcome my ignorance you know
1: and i well, think you don't go out a there lot trying of to teach and people don't... violin <laughs> right
2: for the past 10 minutes and you keep asking more.
1: <laughs> all right go for it <laughs> okay. that's why you were pinching me I guess.
2: yes that's why i was pinching you <laughs> 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 sorry there's okay. questions that our viewers listeners are asking and i want to ask them okay um they might be you know not PhD level questions, but <laughs> they're questions people have. Um, someone said, I saw a snake that looked like it had no pattern until you put a UV light on it. What gene causes that and what's different about those scales?
0: Okay. Um, well, I'd, I'm i going to shoot from the hip and guess they're talking about one of the leucistic snakes in ball pythons. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... That is... Okay, this is going to get... I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this so that it doesn't sound like complete cockamamie. Um, Okay, pigmentation comes about through... Your melanocytes, which are black pigmentation cells. Your... your xanthin-containing cells, which can either contain yellow or red pigmentation. I mean, it's the same cell, but depending on the chemical makeup of the pigment, it's either red or yellow. Okay. And then you have a third structure, which are iridophores. They are basically cells packed with guanidine crystals. I'm so lot lost. So a you one. are speaking yeah, I know. alien. This is where, right this now. Is where it, gets, <laughs> it gets weird. So, they're cells that are basically packed
1: with molecular crystals. And, and those crystals act what? like a prism. They make our snakes basically rainbow. And stuff. <laughs> when people see a rainbow snake, right? Okay. In some respects, yes. But not in all respects. So, these iridophores also they act like
0: prisms. That's what those crystals can do. Okay. So, the way the pigment cells are stacked. In your animal determines how the light comes through. So, if you have like the yellow pigment cells over the iridophores over the melanocytes, okay. then the light comes in, and the last thing it hits is the melanocyte and basically you see all black. Oh. Now, if you remove the melanocyte and you just have the the yellow and the the yellow and the crystalline structure, then it depends on how the light comes down and passes back through. If it comes down and passes back through and reflects back up and it gets bent sideways,
2: <laughs> okay.
0: What instead of seeing yellow, you see green.
1: Wow. Whoa. <laughs> because of how the light is bent, <laughs> so this is the classic. You're not actually seeing a color; you're it's seeing the one reflection. Light, the right? You're things.
0: seeing the refraction of the light. So, in the leucistic snakes, when you're messing up the pigment delivery system, you basically strip out the dep- the deposition of the. The dark cells and the yellow cells, but you still have those crystal pattern cells in there.
2: So the layer
0: just the crystals? The crystals are under there. So when you put a black light on it, what you're seeing is the pattern that's laid down based on how those crystal cells are deposited. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to make my brain think I understand. Think of it as, like, mirrors and glass, okay? If you have, like, a thousand little mirrors and a thousand little glass pieces, Mm -hmm. and you shift them all around, and, you know, then you put a piece of not, you know, fully white paper on top of them, but, like, you know, like, contact paper. You can get some light through it, but not... Right down on it just from above initially all you're going to see is that sort of you know the light color of the contact paper but if you put a bright light down when the light goes down and hits the mirror piece and reflects back up you're going to see a brighter spot under the contact paper versus if it's just hitting a glass piece okay and that's what the UV does, is it's acting like it's it's hitting the mirror ones and bouncing it back up, and that's what's giving you the pattern where it's still
1: passing through the glass pieces. Does that make a bit more
0: sense? Yes, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> and then kind of in, um, we're seeing in some of the scaleless corns, some mutations are, I guess, in the scale. I don't know if you can oh, explain yeah. this, but...
2: Are there crystals if it's still scaleless?
1: <laughs> well, what I'm saying is that some mutations show up, and we're seeing that some may be created in the scales themselves somehow on the top layer to where it's scaleless it doesn't really show up the color doesn't show up because it was in the scales. if that makes any sense
0: right and that's because the deposition of the pigment cell in those is in the scale and not in the more basal layer of the skin of the skin okay
1: I mean, you see, even with especially with Texas rats, you see the natural Texas rat is kind of a nasty, muddy, black, brownish color, and then it's scaleless and it's pure red and black and you know, yellow and black, and it's very defined, all the mm-hmm. stuff on it.
0: Yeah, and that's probably because there's the layer of pigmentation in the skin itself, and there is a second layer of pigmentation cells in those scales. And there's also the prism cells in the scales, which are causing the light to get bent different ways, which, you know, if it's getting scattered out and fanned out, then basically you're just getting all the colors muddied up because they're overlapping each other. Okay. But if you strip away those mirrors and those prisms... It leaves you with... Strip away the scales, it leaves you with that base pattern coloring.
1: Which is why just scaleless have much more crisp pattern in pretty much anything we have scaleless mm-hmm. at this point. Which is super <laughs> cool. But um kind of changing gears, I was wondering if you knew um what I tend to see in the hobby making kind of a generalization is you see a lot of ball pythons with incomplete dominant mutations and you see a lot of the colubrid species with more recessive mutations. Is there any reason why they would be predisposed to more of one, one or of the other?
0: Um, again, this is going back to... <laughs> Uh, sort of... <laughs> <laughs> he's,
2: about, he's about to go, go difficult
0: again. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I hope not. We're going to go all the way back to what we are talking about with, like, selective pressures and things. Oh, okay. Um, That's not you know, I, I was talking one. about, like, <laughs> with, you know, the black pastels and things, how they blend in. Um, you have in... <laughs> in pythons and in ball pythons because and i'm again this is a lot of supposition on my part i'm not swearing that any of this is absolutely true because we don't have the full body of genetic evidence done in snakes but these are things that would hold to a certain degree of logic pythons are more basal level and colubrids are higher up on the evolutionary scale so there's been a greater degree of genetic purification for refining pathways in certain directions in the colubrid type snakes. Because of that, mutations that would be incompletely dominant or dominant Are going to have a tendency to be selected against more in a more highly evolved animal because they have gone through a greater degree of evolution, which has also put them through a greater degree of selective pressure. It's just been kept, it's been chosen out more than. Right. So the likelihood that that gene or that set of mutations is purged because they are detrimental. Is higher because those animals have been exposed to a greater degree of purifying pressure you know with the ball pythons with the carpet pythons with the Burmese pythons and the reticulated pythons they found their niche they found it early and the genes yeah and they stuck with it and the genes that they have you know, the mutations that occurred in them that we see, they're not overly detrimental. Now, you know, why are they not overly detrimental? Well, you know, in retics, you're not seeing huge, you know, changes that cause massive pattern disruption that would make a retic stick out too terribly much now yeah when you start stacking things together you get you know all white orange snakes or Mm -hmm. all blue you know but just the base level individual mutations are not different right they're not enough to cause them to stick out enough but you know because the pythons came early, they got in early, they established their place, you know, the Colubrids had to find more niche environments and places to fit into and in those places it was the more, you know those subtle mutations were still enough (laughs) to create a, an them. imbalance in them that would select against them. Gotcha.
2: I understood that. I followed. I'm I, proud of I myself. I feel like <laughs> just by
1: nature, if you look at calibrids are much more of hunters and around in the open more so maybe just it's,
2: Yeah, look at their yeah, look at how they act, they their temperament, things like so that. Much
1: easier And then as far as um <laughs> Like, you see that most of our leucistics are incomplete dominant. A lot of our, you know, our albinos are recessives. Um, on, like, the DNA level, why is, that, why is that generally a rule? For albinos? Or yeah, just so meaning like For leucistics are generally incomplete dominant from what we see in our hobby. <laughs> and then albinos are typically recessive
0: um, it's okay that's more down to the nature of the mutation and um, it's going to be you know, it's going to be different for each thing so um, with al- albinism pathway where you need a specific enzyme to be formed very early on. You know, the Like a T-minus albino, the mutation that happens is to an enzyme that is required for the very first step of the process to go. So if you can't make that enzyme, the path won't happen and you won't create your dark-colored melanin. Now, creating that enzyme you have two genes, one from your mom, one from your dad. If you lose one of those genes, you're still creating the enzyme from the other gene. That so oh, I, I, I stopped. <laughs> I <lost. laughs> okay. Let me, let me start again. Um, okay. So albino, you have a path, A to B, B to C, C to D. Okay. okay. If I break the chain between A and B, I can never make it to D. Okay. There's one protein that lets me go from A to B, but I can make that two ways. I can make that from mom's gene or dad's gene. Now, normally it's being made by both of them and it's being made in excess. So it's like, you know, I'm pouring two bottles of water into a cup. And the cup is overflowing. Now, if I take one of those bottles of water away, that's my my head. But I'm still pouring the other bottle. I can still fill up the cup. Right. Right.
1: It's still normal coloration. So
0: it's still normal coloration. So that's what happens in albino. If I take both of the bottles away, I can't fill up the cup.
1: Right. And that's where you get
0: that's where you get your albino. Right. Now, for something like a leukistic, what it's more likely is, is instead of just being a simple one protein, one problem type of thing, you're looking at how a structure comes together. So the gene is that's created is like a Lego block. And you have to create a box using that Lego block. Now, if the block is you know, one of those two by four Legos, you can click four of those together to make a square. It's just gonna be a weird looking square. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we're just gonna make the colors blue and pink for mom and dad, if you do two blue and two pink, or four blue, or four pink, or three blue, and one pink, you still end up with that box shape. Right. Because you've got one gene from mom, one gene from dad. Now, if I have a mutation in one of those genes that instead of creating a two by four Lego block, I'm now creating a two by three.
2: That messes it up.
0: (laughs) Right. But I'm only making it from one parent. So I have some two by four, and some, and some two three. by three. So some of my boxes are still going to be four by four, mm-hmm. but some of them are going to be four by three, right? And some of them are going to be three by three, just depending on so the mixture, right? Depending on the mixture. So if I have a mixture of four by four, four by three, and three by three. I get that sort of blended look. It's not a complete mess-up of the color and the pattern, but there's enough there that's causing a problem. And then when I get two of them together, I end up with only 3 by 3s and now everything falls apart, because if I don't have the 4 by 4 the little box doesn't fit right where it's supposed to.
1: So, I mean, we tend to get kind of halfway there. The incomplete dominant um phase of whatever's gonna be a lucy it seems to be halfway there if it's lesser there's obviously a less melanin in that correct or you know we see that in a lot of the the gray banded kink king snakes uh the lucistic the het form what they would call it is washed out and you're seeing you know more of a washed out pattern and coloration there so is that kind of like it seems to get halfway there if that makes any sense
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and, and that's, you know, that's that's where the incomplete and incomplete dominant comes from. And I wish more people would like stop and think about this instead of arguing. No, it's still codominant. No, it's incomplete dominant because this the phenotype that you're seeing is an incomplete expression of the full phenotype. So with the leukistics, yeah, the lesser is an incomplete form of the fully depigmented it's partially depigmented which makes sense right. by the
1: name yes <laughs> <There you go. laughs>
0: like,
1: so let that me, should be pretty obvious <laughs> i want to clear that up to see if my understanding semi correct so codominant would be um you're mixing something blue with something yellow and you get something green correct oh. so they work together to
0: Yes, Um, and this is this is a longstanding argument that I've had with so many people. Codominant is not a specific—you know—you can't just look at a gene and say that gene is codominant. You have to be the parents. Well, you you have to be comparing it to a second gene. So, you know, the the classic easy example of this is blood types in people. If I have A blood. You know, then when you're just looking at you know, me by myself with my A blood type, you can't say, well, A is co-dominant. Because it's not. Boy, right? right. A is A by itself is simple dominant. If I have AA or AO, I show like an A. Mm-hmm. It's a simple dominant gene. The same with B. If I have BB or B O, the phenotype is B. It's only when you have A and B together A B positive that it becomes co-dominant. Right, that it becomes co-dominant because A is being expressed and B is being expressed. They're being expressed co-dominantly at together time. at the same time but they're not you don't just look at somebody with b type blood and say b is a codominant gene you can't say that because you're not looking at it in comparison with another dominant gene Only of that one same gene allele is set is being expressed in that right
2: so with your your blue yellow thing i don't know if it would be correct because the the green would be
0: the single dot well it would be if you're looking at it so If you have an animal that's yellow, Mm -hmm. but genetically it's either, like, we're going to say that the base level is, the base color is brown. Okay. If genetically it's yellow-brown or yellow-yellow, and if you look at either of those genotypes, both of the animals that you have are yellow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And then you have your blue one, which is either blue brown genetic or blue blue genetic. Mm-hmm. But the snake is blue. Now, if you bring those together, if the genetics are yellow blue and it looks green, that's codominant. Because if you only if you had yellow brown, it would be a yellow animal, and if you had blue brown, it would be a blue yellow. animal. But then, when you take those two. But if it was an incomplete dominant gene, you'd have brown-brown, which would be brown, brown, brown-yellow, which would be tan, and yellow-yellow, which would be yellow. That yellow-brown would be incomplete expression of the yellow gene. Right. um version of the pigment
1: right so thinking back i don't know really of much but what does act codominantly in reptiles that we know of is there anything
0: um there's nothing directly that i can think of the closest that we have would be the spider and the blackhead um Spider and Blackhead have been shown to be allelic. But we bo- we know that both of them have a super form. The super form in Spider is lethal, but that's still a super form, and we know that Blackhead has the super Blackhead. And when you put Spider with Blackhead, basically what you end up with is an animal that looks mostly normal. And you can kind of think of it as the Spider mutation turns up the expression of the gold patterning whereas the blackhead turns down the expression of the gold patterning. So when you have them individually... Just kind of balances out? Right. Well, when you have them individually, that's why you get spider with high expression of gold and blackhead with low expression of gold, but when you bring them together, basically are taking, you know, the one that's tuned all the way up and the one that's tuned all the way down and and bringing it back into the middle. Yeah, and they're canceling each other out. But again, it's not true co-dominance, because neither of those genes by itself is simple dominant. They both have a super form.
1: So is that just a perfect coincidence because as far if you take a pinstripe which also seems to be you know maybe more gold and less of that black or melanin and put it with a blackhead it's gonna make a whatever a pinstripe blackhead is right it's not going to make something that looks like a wild type ball python right so that just kind of Stan that it has the perfect amount of increased melanin on the blackhead side and then the and other side of the mm-hmm. gold on the, for the spider. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay, so we so yes, some more. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, some more viewer questions, really just Lilypad, who (laughs) she's really good at questions. Um, and she said she likes jeans. So, um, she said, how do black spots appear on bananas? Do the jeans just turn on at a certain time? But yeah.
0: Um, okay. This is... This is going to be another rampant speculation. We... Well, we don't know exactly what the banana mutation is. So... Saying why the black spot happens is... You know, it's all going to be a bunch of mystic hand-waving. But using a little bit of deductive reasoning here... um, If we look okay so Willie i don't Patton know if <laughs> <Like
2: he's...
0: laughs> he, didn't, he didn't know he was going talking me. about she... bananas he's given me, giving me I, I, this is another one of those i need to think of the best way to describe it that doesn't make everybody think that i'm you know a blithering sociopath <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have not read dr warren booth's most recent paper Go out, find it, read it. I'm pretty sure you can find it on his uh, web his university website page. Um, basically, what it shows is that the conventional wisdom that we've always had that all snakes are ZW is incorrect. And the python and probably boas are actually XY.
1: So what does that mean exactly if you break that down?
0: Well, this comes down to there was a huge argument many, many years ago, you know, decades ago when Banana first came out as to it was sex-linked. And under the conventional wisdom of all snakes are ZW, that absolutely did not work because the gene did not behave as a ZW sex-linked gene would behave now using Warren's paper as a jumping off point and then going off of the work of a couple of other guys who they posted on forums. I can't even remember their usernames. One of them is the guy who also collaborated with Kevin in his book. Um, The argument is that the gene is X-linked and if you pattern it out without the outlier of the male-maker, female-maker switch over, it does behave like an X-linked, sex-linked gene. Now, looking at the bigger picture of things that are sex-linked and are albinism-like, we see a similar mutation in fish and in birds. And in both of those, the mutation is caused by what's known as a transposon, which is basically sort of a defunct virus that can hop in and out of the genes or the DNA without causing disease. It just hops in and breaks things, but it can also hop back out. And when it hops back out, it closes that... You know, when it hops in, it breaks the gene. And when it hops out, it stitches the gene back together so that it works like normal.
2: That's okay. That's
0: crazy. So again, like I said, this is rampant speculation. I'm just going off of some, you know, deductive reasoning based on what we've seen in other places. In both the fish and the birds through breeding, they have taken animals that are f- physically shown the trait, and bred them and bred them, and then they get the spontaneous one that no longer carries the gene, the mutation. And when they sequenced that one, they found that the transposon jumped out and it stitched the thing back together. Okay. So that shows that this transposon is still active and can jump out. My question then is, If the banana mutation is caused by a transposon, is it possible that just by, you know, random weird fluke, every now and then, one of those transposons jumps out, and then that cell that it jumped out of starts producing black pigment like normal. And so you get a little spot that's producing black pigment like normal because those cells are just proliferating right there
1: but what would make that increase over time? Cause I believe the bananas start out without any black spots and then, um, get...
0: Okay. This is where it's going to get really mystic mumbo jumbo. <laughs> so there is a sort of check system in DNA called methylation that allows the DNA to know which copies old versus which is new when it replicates and methylation suppresses the activity of transposons. So if you have a period of time going on where you're, where you're dividing and growing and dividing and growing, you're losing a lot of that methylation, which then allows more a higher chance that a, some transposon is going to get a chance to reactivate because the methylation is removed. So in your babies, almost everything is methylated because they're brand new born and all their cells are brand new. But then as they grow older and they start dividing cells more and dividing cells more, that methylation is getting wiped, which is then allowing transposons to activate, which is then causing your little freckles to pop up here and there. Hmm.
2: Is that why we get moles later in life? <laughs> or
0: uh, liver
1: spots, right? That what, that what?
0: Uh, that's that's different. That's more that's more a response to sun damage.
1: Uh-oh. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So our bananas are definitely not sun-damaged.
0: We <laughs> well, I mean, they could be if you're keeping your banana outside in the sun. I'm guessing right. most people aren't doing that.
1: Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> certainly
2: not. Um, okay, can I do another user yeah, question? Another... <laughs> okay, someone said, are spiders too far gone to stop in- inbreeding and to stop the problems like head wobbling?
0: Um, Uh, spiders I would say are the most outbred gene out there so the head wobble has nothing to do with inbreeding Um, the head wobble is like the bug eye in uh leukistics it's directly tied to the gene okay so yeah you're not going to breed it out
1: but, it's but what what makes that different as far as the the neuro in them the head wobbling seems to be 100 percent all the time when the bug-eyed is you know has a greater range yeah i mean there is variation on the head wobble with the spider but they all have a pretty noticeable head wobble
0: yeah um and that's kind of more going back to that, you know, lesser versus Mojave versus Phantom versus special thing. Right. The spider is the extreme end there. And so it's just going to be a constant level of expression in it because it's that intimately tied. The spider mutation is on the strong
1: end then obviously it goes beyond even if you have a spider with five other genes it shows through
0: right because it's still spider and none of those other genes unless it's blackhead are tied into the same
1: system so they're not going to fix it so do you see a fixing of some of the neuro issues if you have your blackhead
0: if you have a blackhead spider, it does appear. Now I don't have this firsthand cause I don't have any blackheads in my collection, but I've mm-hmm. talked to a number of people and they have said that none of their spider blackheads show wobble.
1: Wow. So we and, essentially broke the puzzle apart and then put it back together.
0: Well, kind of, but when you breed a spider blackhead out, all the spiders that you get from that animal, they're still neuro. <laughs>
1: So I mean no matter what spider's gonna have the neuro unless you have that perfect
0: unless you have blackhead because and that goes back to where, you know, we said the blackhead gene and the spider gene balance each other out so that, you know, the extreme up and the extreme down basically get put back to the middle. Just like with the golden and the Right.
1: Yeah, that's okay. so super interesting.
0: It that, you know, the problem of the neuro gets corrected by the down tuning of the blackhead. <laughs> But then again, you breed it out and you get the spiders from that clutch because there's no blackhead in those spiders to help down tune the problem. Mm -hmm. They show their neuro because it gets tuned right back up to the problem area. I'd be
2: interested to know like how many other opposite... Thing you know that when you put them together, like how many opposite does that make sense?
1: Yeah, which is basically you're asking what else is co dominant, which is almost nothing that we know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, I wonder now we're basically taking all these things that break apart the genes of our animals and basically make them broken how many broken genes do we pile on before we get things that are not useful or we have so many genes at play that Too things default depth. to whatever <laughs> or
0: um, yeah that's the question isn't it uh, um, honestly I don't know I mean I think it's going to tie in with you know what exactly it is that you're breaking I think he- some of the problems that we see so you know like spider champagne
1: Right. Oh.
0: those die there is one argument that says those die because champagne is another allele in the spider group Um, but there is also an argument to be had that both of them are in pathways that affect some type of neural development and so when you bring both of them together You, you know, kick both of the stops out from underneath the scaffolding and the whole thing falls over and collapses.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're taking Um, two wacky animals, putting them together and hoping that they don't make a total train wreck. Right. Now, I'm
0: really looking forward to the next couple of years because a lot of people have been making blackhead champagnes and I want to see what happens when you breed a blackhead champagne out.
2: Mm, maybe if you those breed a blackhead
0: champagne out and you find out that you only get blackheads and you only get champagnes, then that would show that these people who've been saying that champagne is just another allele in the spider group are correct. But if they breed a blackhead champagne yeah. out and get another blackhead champagne the same way you breed a bumblebee and can get a bumblebee, that shows that blackhead and champagne are not allelic. Mm-hmm.
1: So, interesting. Well, it could be interesting. Because allelic animals you put together and basically make a super form and they can recreate themselves only singularly, right?
0: Right. Well, it's okay. So, if you breed, you know, a lesser to a lesser, you get a blue eyed Lucy. You can't breed a blue eyed Lucy to a wild type and get a blue eyed Lucy. You only get lessers.
1: Right? Right.
0: So if you then... But but you uh, get all uh, lessers, correct? Right, you get all lessers, but you only get lessers. You don't get, you know, lessers and wild types. Mm -hmm. If you take a spider and a pastel and breed them together to get a bumblebee, if you breed that to a wild type, you can get spiders, pastels, bumblebees, and wild types. Right. Because pastel and spider are not allelic, whereas lesser and lesser, well, lesser is obviously allelic, so let me change that to lesser phantom. You know, you've got the karma, you breed it, you only get lessers and phantoms, you don't get more karmas and you don't get wild types. So if a blackhead champagne breeds out like a lesser phantom does, then that would mean that the same way lesser and phantom are alleles, champagne and blackhead are alleles. And we know that spider is an allele because when we breed spider and blackhead out to a wild type, we only get spiders and blackheads. But if we breed the champagne blackhead to a wild type and we get more champagne blackheads, then that means that champagne blackhead breeds the same way a bumblebee breeds. And it's not allelic.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So now that we're talking about alleles, um, I had hinted to you earlier about the ultra gene in um, corn snakes, which is actually a hybrid snake. that was bred with a gray rat snake, made the ultra. So I don't know if it occurs just lonely. I don't know the whole um, origin story of that. But the fact is we have two different species of animal that have – Um, Ultra and Amel which are allelic but in different species so how do they communicate with each other and what's the genetic um, difference that they would stop communicating with each other Um,
0: that's going to depend on the gene that we're dealing with so with the Amel and the Ultra um, what years ago, a group actually located the gene for amelanism in corn snakes. Mm. And it turns out it's not... So amel is not truly amelanistic. It's not the mutation that causes a T- negative albino. Um, But we'll leave that aside. We'll just say that it's (laughs) not a true amel. They found the gene for that. Um, So the ultra- is the same gene just from another species okay okay and that works because I mean they're basically sister species mm-hmm so they're not terribly far removed from each other um, and that genetic functionality can carry on for broad distances if there were even a way to breed certain animals so if we go back to a melanism, a melanism, as I said before, is that's a very specific mutation to a very specific gene. The gene is called
1: tyrosinase.
2: We talked about this. Yes. Yeah, and- we were
1: kind of arguing on how to pronounce that. What <laughs> well, there you go. Tyrosinase. Um,
0: tyrosinase is absolutely necessary to make melanin. So anything that has melanin has a tyrosinase gene. That means you have a tyrosinase gene. Your dog has a tyrosinase gene. Your cat, your fish, your bird—color. With color. <laughs> Anything that's got dark brown color, which is basically anything, you don't has any got dark a tyrosinase brown color, gene. Babe. You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> he's got a degree of it because he does produce some melanin. You know, if he gets, especially when he gets a suntan, that's an increase in melanin production. Not the
1: albino.
0: Um, Got brown hair, so there you go. <laughs> um, I lost it. Tyros, say it again. Tyrosinase. Tyros- Tyrosinase. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. Tyrosinase. <laughs> I got it. I got it. So if you want to just look at it in snakes, take a ball python and a Burmese python. We can breed those together. People have bred those together. And they've gotten albinos out of that. And the reason they did that is because the gene is the same. If we're assuming it's a tyrosinase gene, it makes sense. Because obviously, Burmese pythons have brown pigment. And so if you get rid of the tyrosinase, they can't make brown pigment and you get an albino. And the same happens with the albino ball python. Now, if Amel and corn snakes were actually T-negative, and this goes back to what i said about they found out it's not but if it was then theoretically if you could breed a ball python to a corn snake and they were both albinos you would get albino hybrids Hmm. Because
1: it's the same gene. You just need to make sure that it's actually That's the same gene. We just don't call it the same right. gene in the. Which happens with a lot of genes right.
0: in snake world. Or, Which it. happens with a lot of snakes. <laughs> or you know, w- they, we make assumptions. Um, yeah. You know, with uh, like with with uh, boa constrictors, you've got the sharp line albino and the call line albino, and they're both just you know, to the passing eye, they could both be T-negative. But the question is, which is T-negative? Because we know they're not allelic to each other, because if you breed a sharp to a call, the babies that you get from that look like wild type. They're double heads. So what what most likely is, is that one of them is a T-negative, and the other one is a T-positive. But it's just super extreme, the same way that... The what we call amel in corn snakes is super so extreme, extreme to the point that it looks like amelanism. so weird.
1: Now, on paper, if you have a true T positive and a true T negative and you breed those two together, get the hats, raise them, and get the double visual, I guess, what does that create? It looks like an amel, a true amel, a T negative.
0: Oh. Because you can think about it if, again, okay, go back to that pathway that I talked about, A to B, B to C, C to D. Now make it longer so that it goes all the way out to Q. The T negative albino step breaks the chain between A and B. But T positive would be somewhere else downstream. So say it's between H and I. So if I lay out all my letters and I'm breaking between H and I, that gives me a T positive albino. Mm -hmm. If I have the H and I break, but then I go back and I cut the A and B, I can't even make it to H and I. I stop at A. I don't go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H and stop. I go A and stop. So you never, right, so you never even of, get to it. You can't even get to H because all of it stops right there at A. So your animal even if it has both the cut between the A and the B and the H and the I, it doesn't matter. You stop at the A because that's where the first break is and that's
1: where it ends. And these mutations happen in the same place throughout species. So that T negative, T positive always happens across the board.
0: Well, I mean <laughs> I guess you hate the yes say and no. sure across uh, the board <laughs> well uh. so a t-negative albino is a t-negative albino and if I have a t-negative ball python and a t-negative berm and a t-negative retic they're all t-negative which means they're all mutations to tyrosinase
1: <laughs>
0: but there can be multiple mutations to the tyrosinase that can break it So, um, in the zebrafish, there have been categorized, I think, nine different mutations to the tyrosinase Mm. enzyme that all end up being T-negative. They totally destroy the tyrosinase enzyme. To make it even more fun, there are also a handful of mutations that don't break the enzyme completely. They just mess it up so that it doesn't work 100%. And those aren't T-negative, but they still show a faint albino phenotype. Which, not so that saying that this is absolutely the it? case, but it's kind of like it's kind of like the candy mutation
1: in ball pythons. I'm not really familiar with that one.
0: So the candy mutation is not exactly, but kind of the same color as a banana, basically. But it's allelic to albino. So if you breed a candy to an albino, you get what are called candinos, and they're also sort of looking like pale bananas in color. So it's possible that what we have in ball pythons is the albino is a true T negative, where the mutation breaks the tyrosinase completely. But the candy is a T positive. It's just that the tyrosinase is functioning at about 10% of its normal level. Completely break it. Right. Now, it's also possible that the mutation is somewhere else, and you've got the same thing going on, where it's like AML and Ultramel, in corn snakes where you know the first mutation is just really extreme and it mimics looking like a t-negative and then the second one is not as extreme and that's why it looks you know different but still somewhat albino
1: right you had a question? Okay.
2: Yes, can you hold, or yeah. the, I don't have a question, they have a question, <laughs> um, but I am read it. <laughs> um, so another question. What determines co-dominance rather than more of a mix? For example, a blue and red showing on one, but then purple showing on another.
1: Uh, I don't get the question, but I'm reading well. It. I think the nature of that makes it not co-dominant I believe what she's saying is <laughs> I don't know.
0: Uh that's not my question <laughs> I <just read> it. <laughs> Um, okay, i'm just gonna take a stab in the dark. I think they're talking on like a Like a more macro level like if you have a red gene and a blue gene Then why isn't the animal like red and blue striped and instead it looks purple? Um, And the reason for that, I mean, it's it's kind of like how you see the expression of pigment. Pigment in animals is usually expressed, you know, microscopically where you have, you know, a small cell that expresses the red pigment and then a small cell next to it that expresses the blue pigment. So when you have those scattered all together, you know, if you get down and look real close, right, if you get down and look real close, you can see the individual red cell, blue cell, red cell, blue cell, red cell, blue cell. But when you back up, all you see is the blended color reflection so you get the purple
2: okay okay so that makes sense so to us it looks like a mix because we're just looking at it
1: but if you go
2: right, all, the, all the way in like you're gonna level. see that codominance <laughs> okay um, second question someone wants to talk again about how we- Cost Mojave
1: what? coat. I don't know
2: what. The- she said. Can you please explain to Joe what a Cost Mojave is because he doesn't think it's a morph. Well, he said that last week. I don't know. What- I still don't know what a Cost Mojave is. But this person lives in the UK.
0: Um. I have never heard of Cosmo Mojave. I only know Mojave. Right.
2: We still don't know. It's they just put COS Mojaves that are a thing in the UK, but I no.
1: we don't, don't have, Sorry,
2: it. we don't know what
1: they are. Yeah, no, no worries. No, so, we worry, so we were, we were talking about um, kind of where mutations come from and how a lot of people i mean we've seen incubation things happen whether it be you know fungus growing on the egg or temperature swings and we see like in ball pythons we may see those like tiger animals i think is what they call them back in the day or like banded animals and different things that we see from temperature spikes do you know exactly why that happens during development and why it's not hereditary <laughs> So the exact why, I can't tell you.
0: But I can, you know... <laughs> well, it's going to be different for each different thing that you see. So, you know, why do you see tiger banding? Why do you see strange striping? Why do you see whatever? I, it's it's different for everything that you see. That's why I can't tell you, because you're dealing with a thousand different cases, and the root behind each one is going to be different. <laughs> but basically, you know, you get a temperature spike at some point, and you can un- think of it as, you know genes cells everything when they get heated up they speed up you know just they you know when you boil water it shakes and shivers and that's what causes it to bubble and boil it's kind of the same thing you heat up the cells then they start working faster things move faster well if you heat it up and the cells move faster and the proteins jump faster then the timing that they're supposed to happen doesn't happen right which causes sort of an echoing effect it gets passed on. Now, why isn't it that genetic? Well, because it's not the gene that's the problem. All the genes are normal. It's the heat that caused the whole process to get sped up.
1: You so know, basically it could provide results visually, but at a micro level isn't working the same as our mutations. Right. Um,
0: you know, you know, you get a fungal infection. What you could potentially have is some of the proteins from the fungus, like a toxin or secretion or something gets into the egg. And again, it causes something to happen where the gene, you know, gets turned on differently or something but again the genes for the animal aren't being changed just the way they're getting turned on and the way they're being expressed is different because of but the because fungus. right because of the fungus but because the genes are still perfectly normal in the animal then when that animal breeds out it's just passing on normal genes right it's Unless not passing another on fungus got in but that's just right pain. it's not passing on whatever weird thing happened to it in the egg that was an outside influence Gotcha.
1: That makes sense. And now when genes mess with development as far as, you know, your super spider or your caramel that may have kinking, um, what's going on there when obviously maybe the single form of it doesn't fully affect the animal, but you get that that visual caramel and you get kinking and stuff like that?
0: Yeah. That's, you know, like, well, like with kinking and caramel, when you only have the single form and it's het, the wild type protein is there to behave normally. So you're not suffering from whatever imbalance problem there is. You get the homozygous form. There's nothing there to act in the correcting manner. With spider, it's, you know, more that Lego analogy that I made where, you know, you've got the one spider gene and your brick that's being made by the spider gene is causing the whole structure to get messed up enough that it's just constantly getting weirded out. There's no way you can correct it because you can't build the proper box at the end as long as the spider
1: gene is present. You're going to ask Lily? I'm not sure exactly what Lily Pad's question is. I don't
2: know about. either. Uh, we just read the questions we get. Uh, <laughs> why do some snake, snakes have
1: um,
2: vestigial? Is that how you say that vestigial word? Vestigial legs. Vestigial legs. Is it a certain breed or gene?
0: Um, most of the vestigial legs goes back to, you know, the more basal level snakes. So the boas, the pythons, the older archaic ones. And again, it's just a matter of... <laughs> They haven't had any reason to purge them. There's been no selective pressure against them. So the genes that produce that formation stay there. I don't even know. As long those are. as there's, yeah, lily pads. above <laughs> well, my lily, right lily, right lily pads. Well, you, you do know. You just don't know that you know. So the spurs
1: <laughs> that you oh, have okay. on
0: your iPod, those yeah, you are the legs. Like, those spurs are actually <laughs> those spurs are claws. That's a single toe on the snake. The and if you look at the like if that. you look at the skeleton there, you can actually see that it's a toe and a leg, and a hip. That's crazy. Yeah. It's just really, really super reduced. And it, the genes are still expressed enough to form just that little structure. hmm But they're not completely wiped out because there isn't a pressure to wipe it out there to wipe them out you know it needs to be breeder's choice to do that well and now well we'll it would need to be nature's choice i mean if you look at you know certain species you know my rubber boas they've got spurs but they're super tiny and part of the reason is because rubber boas are a lot more you know terrestrial and they'll also burrow and having something stick out yeah, that's kind of selected against because if you've got something sticking out, then it could get caught and grabbed and pulled. Mm-hmm. So they tend to be a lot more reduced in you know, the burrowing species. Uh, same with Kenyan sand boas the spurs are there but they're really really
1: tiny and then I thought in those species you can actually tell I'm not sure if it's the rubber boa exactly but you can tell male from female because of the spur length
0: because of the spur length yeah Um, and that's part of a selective pressure being maintained is the males will spur the females so the males tend to keep theirs at least long enough for stimulation for breeding while the females don't have to keep a hold of them
1: (laughs) right yeah if you see on like retics oh they'll you like you'll see them move it's kind of creepy but they like to stimulate. To get
2: the there Whoa, a little wooing action
1: <laughs> and then i mean in the corn snakes you see like the twitching action uh-huh. but it's just a different they don't have any spurs they just use their but, body
0: but they're they're, they're still twitching that, that lower half of their body so you know the 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 behavior is there but the spurs as a stimulus have been lost so they're using just that lower half of the body instead that's interesting (laughs) Um, and while we were talking i did a quick google search on cosmojave okay what it appears to me is that it's just another allele in the blue eye group that is you know out of africa that resembles a mojave so it's probably just you know Another instance of it occurring the same way, you know, we've got the Ralph Davis line of lesser, and then there's the Noah line of lesser, and there's somebody else who's got a line of lesser. They all look the same. They're It's the same or similar mutation. Right. Hello? So... Yeah, it's just another allele in the group that looks like a Mojave and...
1: Acts the same in every sense.
0: And acts the same in every sense. It's part of the blue eye group. You breed it, you're going to get a super that's a blue eye. Um, yeah, it's not a radical surprise. I know of a couple of other people who've got similar morphs. I know there's ones floating around in the background called a striped Mojave, which it's not really a Mojave, but it looks a lot like a Mojave, <laughs> except they... <laughs> except they have a tendency towards striping, which, you know.
1: And at at some point, I mean, we don't see any types of line breeding in ball pythons. I mean, is the possibility still there just as much as in, you know, some of our colubrids and stuff that we don't have as many mutations, so we line breed? I think there's too many in ball (laughs) pythons. Yeah, I think the
0: problem is that there's too many in ball pythons. And so people don't generally, I mean, it's also kind of a mindset... Especially early on with ball pythons, it was just get as many damn genes into the animal as possible because, you know, it's a powerhouse breeder. Mm. Okay. It, it doesn't matter that it is ugly as sin. It's got 17 genes in it, man. I can breed it to anything and make anything, but yeah, but it's ugly. <laughs> right. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of deflection from that now um you know you see some people who are working towards refining cleaner lines of stuff um you know ozzy with his orange dream Dream. he's really pushing that um bob o'brien has got the orange dream too he he jumps in and he's definitely been doing some selective breeding along the same lines um But, yeah, it's not happening with a lot of people. I think there still tends to be a bit more push towards just cram as many genes into your animal as possible. So you can say you got a world's first. And right. and so yours can be 10 names
1: long. Well, I, yeah. I mean, we're getting past the point where you can sell like a brown snake for 20 grand just because it's. Because it has seventeen different, different things in it. Mm-hmm. So, do you know of um, you take your scaleless in a lot of our colubrids, and we still have, you know, scale ventral scales, scales on the belly, and then you take your ball python, which is completely scaleless. Um, how are those different genes being expressed in order to keep, you know, belly scales or not? Um, don't
0: really know. Uh, mm. My guess is it's just you're looking at different pathways. Kind of like
1: the pods. There's different ways to get it.
0: Yeah, there's different ways to get it and different levels of expression. Um, And, I mean, we know with ball pythons being a good example of it that there are definitely different ways to get it because you've got the scaleless headline that makes the scaleless, but you also have the micro scale line. And that's been proven now to make scaleless too um i would like to see somebody do micro scale to scaleless head just to see what it would do right you know again maybe this is an allelic clade and that's why we're seeing the same phenotype at the end but maybe they're different and that would show hey look there's two different ways to get a scaleless
1: so yeah it'd be interesting i mean it seems like i mean the corn snake is a perfect exactly what you want it keeps the belly scales and is scaleless everywhere else i feel like the definitely the ball python is more compromised as far as not having belly scales i just at least on a surface level seems to me a little bit more risky and-
0: yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree, but, you know, there are a lot of people who are arguing that they do just fine, and, you know, unfortunately, I think there was a lot of mm, hype and insanity at the very beginning when it came to BHB, and there was a, a failure to communicate uh, openly or as openly as would have been beneficial, which caused a lot of backlash. And I think it's going to take a lot for people to be really, really comfortable with it. Um, You know, but Winston has been pretty upfront with everything that he's been doing. Um, What's his name? Mike
1: Wilder, thanks.
0: Will, thanks. Thank you. Has also been pretty, you know, straightforward with his. As Which he, is you know, the same line of. <laughs> yeah, line. it's the same line, and you know, ultimately, I think it could be legitimately argued that the BHB line of scaleless head and Winston's line of scaleless head are probably going to show to be the same thing. I mean, if you breed a, a Winston scaleless to a BHB scaleless, I'm scaleless head. I, I'm almost certain that you're going to end up with a scaleless ball python. I don't see them being, you know, two completely different instances. Everything about them...
1: They seem to express in the same exact way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it'd be like... You know, it, it, they're basically the coral glow and the banana
1: of the scaleless head group. I mean, they're... They're the yeah, same All we gene. need they to just- know now is for someone to be honest about what's going on about <laughs> everything.
0: Yeah, and that, like I said, it just didn't seem to happen very well <laughs> with Kevin, or with uh, Brian, for... Whatever reason, you know, I'm not going to get into the yeah. whole political <laughs> bullshit behind that. that because, you know, it, it just I, I will say that it, it was not communicated very well with the public. Which and
1: is, I, I don't think the same thing we're seeing in Palmettos now with corn snakes. As yeah. As and
0: talking. I don't Either think anybody would say that that is an untrue statement. Um, but, you know, now watching Winston and Mike, you know, seeing how there's turnout and how they go, I think it'll you know, give people more answers and hopefully it'll make it a little bit easier for us to understand what's going on. But it's still something that I think people should keep their eye on, not because I'm saying that there is a problem there. I just think that now that we have more open communication it'll be better all around for everybody to you know keep an eye on it and understand better
1: right yeah i mean i think it's hard sometimes when people have 50 grand or something in an animal to be completely honest when you got to make your money back i guess but i don't know snake snake stuff can be kind of weird like that but i mean as far as um as, you know how to scale how do they basically know like well we need to at least keep the ocular scale intact like it's just crazy how that, how that ha- do you know any idea because like we're not purging yeah. in in captivity it's it's like. so it's like it's not like that survived in the wild because it would never had the chance to be purged how do we just get so lucky to keep o- ocular scales and stuff like that
0: Um, mm, my guess is it's sort of a, a pathway expression thing. Um, the, you know, the, the way that scales are laid down is expressed differently through different parts of the body and it's expressed specifically for the eyes differently than it is for the rest of the body. Um I mean the animals while they're scaleless they still shed their skin
1: right which
0: is still a keratin layer so I don't know that it's true to say that they're really scaleless so much as it's their scale non-formed because the carrot the keratin sc- the that makes up their scales is still there and it's still what's being shed. It's just not in a structured manner of
1: You know your discrete scales would so be like a super low expression of the keratin
0: It's just an unstructured expression of the keratin, um, and I think that also goes when you uh, Look at you know Brian's adult when he had it um down at Daytona. People were saying that it had, like, weird warts. warts and things. I think that's, you know, it's the non-structured expression causes, you know, sometimes these keratin masses form because it's not being laid out in a structured manner. It's just randomly, you know, piling up in certain places.
1: And you think, I mean, that goes back to our bug eyes or something. Do you think that a certain percentage are going to get those warts and a certain... Aren't?
0: I I think it's likely that yeah, some of them will um, end up showing, you know, these keratinized deposits because yeah, you're basically just getting unstructured expression of the keratin.
1: Very interesting. And controversial to some, I think.
0: (laughs) And I'm I'm sure that I've probably just made a bunch of enemies by saying that I think it's likely that it'll happen. But, you know, again, this is about honesty. And, you know, you have to think about, you know, what it is that's really happening in these animals. And if you think if you think about it in a broad sense, then, yeah, it's probably that the keratin is there it's just not being structured into cell into scales shaped patterns and that's why you still get the scale over the eye because that's structured differently than the scales in the body and when they shed they're shedding a keratin layer it's just not that structured keratin layer
1: yeah because i mean you still get a sh- i mean i haven't seen a shed skin but i mean obviously yeah i
2: don't know yeah. what it looks like more like a stocking
1: skin. rather than <laughs> a <snake> shed there or- <laughs> I don't know if you've seen.
0: Yeah, that. I, I haven't seen. I haven't seen the sheds on the scaleless either. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't even know what it would look
1: like. Just. I just think we're getting so weird when ball pythons start having droopy ears. Then <laughs> that's it, man. I'm out. But um, yeah, just so many weird things that's going on in our yeah. gene pool.
2: I think we just don't know enough about scaleless yet.
1: Yeah. Do you yeah. think that maybe our selection of things that aren't normal could possibly allow for more room? As far as we're selecting for um, spontaneous mutations, would that ever make it um, a higher instance of mutations popping out of eggs in captivity? um
0: no because you know the rate of mutation is just a random thing okay so there's no i mean you're just as likely to put your seven gene male in with your three gene female and pop out something new as you are to stick two wild types together and pop out something new it's just a completely random chance
1: okay yeah, that makes sense. I think we're going to lose... I mean, at a certain point, we're going to have so many... There's not going to be many one-gene animals where we're going to be able to take apart and find these it's not mutations happen. if they happen. Yeah. You know, randomly have a snake that comes out some type of weird pied but never be able to outbreed separate, it and mm-hmm. separate all the genes. Do you think that maybe there's some type of crazy overlap and... <sighs> Um, I forget what it is in ball python some people just say it defaulted to pied you know like some of the champagne stuff goes to pied or I don't know
0: Um, yeah the champagne extreme ringers um, that's another long conversation that I've had with a number of people so that kind of goes back to the nature of the mutation itself which is you know if you look at champagne basically what it is is it's unstructured expression of pigmentation over the animal there's no you know patterning it's just the brown and the gold are all thrown in in a great big mash um and if you think about basically running along the spine is a conveyor belt of buckets that runs the pigment down and then dumps the pigments in the right places to have them expressed. (laughs) When you get down to your vent area, there's a major change in body structure because that's where the hips of these animals would be. So the way the body is laid out there changes from, you know, backbone, 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 hips and tail. Mm -hmm. So because you get that change in body patterning, the way the conveyor belt system there changes... And if you disrupt it too much, you just dump all pigment out, so you get those ringers. And depending on the other mutations that you add to it, um, if they have a similar hiccup factor, then you could see over expression of that. So like with uh, the... Um, The black pastel group, you know, you see ringers spontaneously forming in those. So when you have two different morphs that have spontaneous ringer formation, then you're kind of adding one to the other and getting much larger larger expression of ringers. Pides, because of their nature, also tend to get ringers. Um, That's why almost every champagne head pied has got a massive ringer going on up to looking almost like a pied animal so the default to pied is kind of a misnomer it's more it's it's expressing at a higher degree that transition area default or disruption
1: okay that makes sense. So that's explains that everything stems from the tail. It's not like you're defaulting the pied, and all of a sudden there's a pied marker on its middle of its body it's or towards the from head. The bottom. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. always coming that ringer at the tail. Hmm. Huh. Well, I think uh, we're coming up on two hours now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we talked about everything. Like I said, I was going to give you an outline of things we were going to talk about, but who knows, at the end of the day, you talk about a bunch of random stuff wherever our brain goes. Hopefully, we didn't um, confuse ourselves too much or we... I don't know. Aren't too slow to pick up on some of the stuff you said. Hopefully, um, uh, we didn't look too stupid <laughs> from our end. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, people have questions. You guys get answers, and th- there's nothing
0: stupid about asking questions. That's yeah. I,
1: that's mean, the, I that's certainly the way you,
0: learn, you know that goes back to that ignorance thing. Like I said, I you acknowledge know, my ignorance. No, we, no. We you all too. have ignorance. We all have to embrace it, and the best way to embrace it is to say, "I don't know what." I don't know what that is. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to say I'm ignorant of this and I want an answer. Can somebody help me? And, you know,
1: yeah if i can I if always... I
0: can help, I am happy to realize that you know there are still some things that I'm going to throw my hands up in the air and be like, I had no idea mm. you know, and sometimes you know what I've got to guess, but I'll tell you what I'm doing is guessing here I'm guessing based on you know information from other directions that make me think
1: this could be a possibility, but at the end of the day, it's still a guess, but it's more basis than we have to make guesses for the most part. At least most people in the hobby don't have a Ph.D. in genetics, so <laughs> I think your your guess is going to be better than mine. And then, I mean, just uh, people uh, people ask me questions about snakes all the time. It's like I know a very basic and only a few species of snakes. There's so many different things going on. Very true. Definitely no expert. Well, thank you so much for two hours of your time tonight. Hey, not a problem. Not a problem at all. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Hopefully we shed some light about all different types of stuff. And um, if you want to, do you want to put anything out there? Do you have a business name for your ball pythons or anything like that?
0: No, I'm just, you know, small scale hobby breeder. So no business name or anything. But, you know, if anybody wants to find me, I'm on Facebook, Travis Wyman. Um, You know, you can occasionally find me lurking around forums as a (laughs) A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I.
1: Uh, email is the same at gmail so if you see him comment about any of your genetic stuff don't argue with him guys <laughs> Come on.
0: he knows what he's talking about you can argue with me but if you argue with me <laughs> Make sure that your argument has a little bit more substance to it than more than just, uh uh, you're wrong. (laughs) You know, "Uh -uh, I'm wrong. That doesn't, isn't a good argument for me. (laughs) I I, I can't work with you there.
1: Absolutely. Well, we, you can find us, Port City Pythons, Facebook, Instagram, website. What do you want to say?
2: YouTube obviously we're Is on youtube it you?
1: you got anything? that's all i had awesome thank you guys so much for watching live and for anyone listening on the download we will catch you next week